Well, it's the second week of our series called Honest to Goodness. I figured we would open this week by a good old game of two truths and a lie. I'd love to have you play with each other, but we don't have time for that. I'm going to give you three statements about myself, and I want you to decide which one you think is the lie. Okay, here we go. First statement about myself. I was once taken to the hospital in Barcelona, Spain, because I was bleeding out of my head, having been injured in a street riot. Statement number one. Statement number two. I was once rescued from the side of a mountain by the Alpine rescue helicopter in the Austrian Alps because my friends and I had gotten lost and stuck. Okay? Statement number three. I was nearly expelled from both university and seminary. All right? So I know I may have told some of these stories before. Some of you have some guesses. I can't see you, but who thinks the, the, the lie is the first statement? Hospitalized in Barcelona, injured in a street riot. All right, you can look around the room. Those are the statement number one people. Who thinks the lie is statement number two? Rescued off the side of the Austrian Alps. Okay, look around. Those are the statement number two people. Who thinks it was statement number three was the lie that I was nearly expelled from both university and seminary? Those are the statement number three people. All right, I'll be straight with you. They're all true. All, I, the, the series is called Honest to Goodness. I can't tell a lie in a series like that. <laughs> I, I know I've told the first two stories before, so I'll quickly tell you the third story. In university, I handed in a final paper, and there was a mix-up with the page numbers, and my professor became convinced that I plagiarized the entire thing. He forwarded it to the disciplinary board for review. And by the time I talked to him on the phone about it, he was so mad. He said, the only thing that frustrates me more than you, than you cheating is me not being able to figure out what textbook you stole it from. And I explained to him the whole process, what had happened and, and how I actually hadn't cheated. It was an original piece of work and he dropped the charges and I was profoundly complimented that he thought that my second year project was worthy of being called the textbook. Um, In seminary, the story's worse. I was supposed to take an exam uh, for a correspondence course. They sent it to me in the mail. I opened the exam. It was three questions. I read the three questions. As soon as I read the third question, I realized I hadn't actually reviewed that textbook. So I closed the exam, put it back in the envelope, went and reviewed the textbook, came back, got the exam, answered the three questions and mailed it off to my prof. I didn't sleep for four days. On the fourth day, I called my prof. He hadn't even received the exam yet. And I said, I need to tell you a story. This is what I did. He said, thank you. I will call you back. And he hung up the phone. Three hours later, He called me back and said, I've been in a meeting with the dean of students. And after a very long discussion, we've decided that we will not expel you because we would have never known. You confessed to what it is that you've done. We've decided instead, I'll give you a zero on that question. There's only three questions. You're down to two. The exam is 70% of your grade. Good luck passing the course, which I did by the very, very slimmest of margins but it was the most embarrassing and humiliating thing I've ever had to do 
In fact, it's humiliating just telling you all about it. But it was probably one of the most important moments in my entire life because in that moment, I was forced to learn what I think James would call the most fundamental form of honesty, which is honesty about yourself. We're picking up James chapter 5 in verse 13. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can read along. In James chapter 5 verse 13, James starts like this. He says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. James begins this section by talking about three common scenarios that each one of us, at one point or another, find ourselves in in the course of our lives. He says, you know, first off, is any of you in trouble? And he doesn't mean like I was in trouble, like getting disciplined for bad behavior. He means, are any of you in circumstances where you're in a lot of trouble, right? Or probably better, what James means is, are any of you in troubling circumstances? Because the word actually describes your sort of inner response to living in chaotic, difficult circumstances. The stress and distress, the discouragement and depression that comes when life goes sideways or even backwards. The second circumstance, he says, is any of you happy? Kind of an unfortunate translation because it kind of suggests, right, the pursuit of happiness is going after making your life good. And that's, James isn't talking about, is any of your lives going well? You know, opposed to these people who are, who's, are in these terrible circumstances and they're distressed and stressed and whatever. You know, your life is going well. That's not what he means. What he means, he's still writing to people who are in difficult circumstances, But he's describing an inner attitude of spirit whereby someone is encouraged and hope-filled and faith-filled and resolute and spiritually strong in the midst of very terrible circumstances. James says, if any of you are going through some seriously difficult circumstances, but you find your spirit strong and filled with hope and encouragement, he says, you should praise God for giving you that strength to getting through this season of your life. Then he says, are any of you ill? The word literally means to be weak, but it was used to describe people who were living with a diagnosis, whether a physical diagnosis or an emotional health diagnosis or a mental health diagnosis. It could even be used to talk about a lack of spiritual strength. It was kind of this, whenever um, you just weren't firing on all cylinders in some aspect of your life, James says, you know, you should call the elders and pray. James describes these three responses to terrible circumstances in our lives. And in each one, he says the the proper response is to somehow call out to God in song or in prayer and invite God into those circumstances. But the reason I started this morning talking about honest self-disclosure, the importance of honest self-disclosure is because it suddenly hit me when I was reading this passage. That you don't ever get to the place of inviting God into the midst of your circumstance if you can't even be honest about yourself 
first of all, to yourself. I believe that we're experts at lying about ourselves to ourselves. If you can't admit that you're in trouble, if you can't admit that, you know, circumstances are bad, if you can't admit that there's something going on in your life, there's no way to invite God into the midst of that, right? And we lie to ourselves all the time. We lie about our circumstances, right? We lie and tell ourselves that we're not in over our head and we don't need to ask for help. We lie to ourselves by, you know, saying, no, no, my fr- this friendship isn't in trouble. My marriage isn't on the rock. My kids are going to be fine. And then we don't actually go and uh, get the counseling help or whatever it is. We don't actually get the help that we need to make sure that everything is fine. We lie to ourselves about our pain, about the, the stress that we're living. We, we deny that we're not coping well. And we end up with like ulcers or panic attacks. We deny that somebody's actions really did hurt us deep down inside. And because we won't admit it, we cut ourselves off from helping it get better. And it ends up infecting our soul. We, we lie about our sin. We blame other people and say, if they hadn't done this, I wouldn't have done that. So it's not my fault. We deny that there are sinful patterns in our lives. We deny that there are character issues. We minimize our sin and maximize other people's sin and say, well, compared to so-and-so, I'm not so bad. We lie about ourselves to ourselves all the time. And we do it for exactly the same reason that I said last week, that we tell all the other lies that we tell in our lives. We do it to protect ourselves and to promote ourselves. We do it because we are unable, many of us, to process the idea that we are weaker or somehow inferior to what we thought we were. That somehow these things that we cannot admit to ourselves are black marks on our identity or on our worthiness. And so we just don't allow ourselves to consider the possibility that we're hurt or that we have sinned or whatever the case may be. Now, there are other, others of us, I should say, who, are, who lie to them ourselves for the exact opposite motivation. You've grown up maybe in an abusive environment or in an alcoholic environment or in a really strict religious context. And the upbringing has now filled you with so much shame that you lie to yourself in the other direction. You cannot, you know, where lots of people cannot believe there's something wrong with them. You cannot believe there's something right with you. You cannot see the beauty of the way that you've been created in the image of God. But we... We lie to ourselves about ourselves all the time. And what ends up happening is we end up cutting ourselves off from the opportunity to invite God into our circumstance and to experience the healing and the forgiveness that God wants to bring. I think James is challenging us in the text that we need to learn to be honest about ourselves, first of all, to ourselves. But second of all, we've got to learn to be honest about ourselves to other people in our lives. Right? Like, listen to it again to that verse that I just read. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. 
right? James says, if you're battling a diagnosis and things are really big, things are really bad, tell someone else. He says, call the elders. Now, elders in the church are senior, seasoned, godly, wise, respected, honored uh, leaders in the community who are responsible for the well-being of everyone in the community and the community itself. James says there comes a point in time where sometimes it's appropriate to actually tell somebody else what's going on and get them involved. And it says the elders will come and anoint you with oil, which is kind of a really weird thing because we don't do that in the 21st century. They, they did it all the time in the first century. But anointing with oil kind of has a dual purpose to it. On the one side, uh, olive oil, which is what James is talking about, was considered medicine in the ancient world. It was the cure-all. They, they, they prescribed it for everything from a toothache to paralysis. Um, and so at some level, it's possible that the elders were coming and actually administering medicine, doing medical things. But at the same time, oil had this like symbolic spiritual value where when somebody was anointed with oil, it was it was a symbolic way of saying this person has been set apart for God's purposes. And James says there comes a point in time sometimes where you just have to tell the elders of the church what's going on in your life and they'll come and, and they'll treat you and they'll mark you off. And as, they, as they're, you know, in, in this context, as they're treating you with oil, they'll be lifting you up in prayer. But it's not just calling the elders. Verse 16. James says this, therefore confess your sins to whom? To each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The, the telling the elders is kind of the extreme worst case scenario. James says in an ongoing way though, we ought to be practicing this authentic, honest self-disclosure with the circle of people that God has put in our lives. We should be he says, confessing our sins to each other, being honest with each other about the deep and dark stuff that's going on on the inside. Um, the word confess, it's not like this big formal thing, going to booth with a priest or anything like that. Like it's, it just simply means to declare publicly that you agree that something is true, including your sinfulness. It's just saying what is the case to people around you. And in fact, the word confess in the Greek language is written in the present tense of the Greek language, which means a behavior that is repeated or ongoing or continuous. James says it should be a habitual, a regular, an ongoing um, pattern of behavior in the community that you are being honest about what's going on in your life even the dark stuff with the people around you and they're being honest about the stuff that's going on in their life with you and you are lifting each other up mutually in prayer in order to experience the healing and forgiveness of God I think James knows that sickness and sin our circumstances and our behavior um, isolate us from each other, right? When your life is going sideways or backwards or you're, you're caught in a pattern of sinful behavior, you hide from people, you withdraw, 
right? Because you're afraid that they're going to they're gonna, uh, judge you, that they're going to condemn you and your behavior, that they're going to think less of you. You're afraid they're going to reject you and abandon you and they're going to withdraw from you. You're afraid they're going to think of you as weak and inferior. But at the same time, because of your sickness and, and, and sin, if it becomes known, people withdraw from you, right? Because for some reason, we get uncomfortable around other people's misfortune or their sin. We, we get uncomfortable when other people disclose the truth about what's really going on in their lives because we don't know what to say. And we, we think, you know, I don't know how to respond. And so we actually start avoiding people who've got stuff going on in their lives because it makes us uncomfortable. It begins to make us question our own circumstances and sinfulness. And it just, it's too uncomfortable. This is what a German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, Sin poisons the whole being of a person. But in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says everything changes when you find the courage to be honest about yourself with the people that God has put in your life. Suddenly you, you experience the inbreaking of genuine togetherness. We talked about this last week when, when I can trust you enough to be my authentic self around you as ugly, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly warts and all, whatever that means to be my authentic self with you. And you trust me enough to be your authentic self with me. We begin to break away from the aloneness that comes with sin and sickness and, and we begin to experience the care and support that comes through the hands of other people. We, we begin to experience freedom from uh, the sin and the, the, the circumstances that have a grip on us. See, when you, when you say something out loud, when you confess something is real, it breaks the power of that thing over your life. There, there have been studies that have been done of women who were victims of sexual violence who hadn't told a soul. And even the act of writing a, a journal entry, being honest about what happened, is enough to spark um, positive health outcomes in the lives of those women. We are set free. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what truth does. It breaks the stranglehold. A friend of mine once said, nobody heals in secret. You can only heal in relationship, which means you can only heal when people know what's going on in your life. Now, obviously, there's a lot to be said about the kind of person you would confess to, tell the truth about your life to. They have to be someone who is safe, who will respect your confidentiality. They have to be someone, Bonhoeffer says, they have to be someone who has known the grace and forgiveness of Jesus so that they're equipped to provide grace and forgiveness instead of judgment because they're a sinner too. And it has to be someone who is willing to be as equally honest with you as you have been with them so you can confess 
to each other and pray for each other. But the, the whole point is, James says, regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in, and they're all general descriptions that he provides, regardless of the circumstances, the only way for the healing, forgiving love of God to break into your world is if you can find the courage to be honest about yourself to yourself and then to be honest about yourself to the people that God has put in your life. Because once you've been honest in those ways, then you can finally take the last step that is the one that James is ultimately focused on, which is to be honest about yourself to God in prayer. Right? Because at the end of the day, you look around the room, we're not here for group therapy. This is church. This isn't about the healing power of confession. This is about what God does when we invite God into our circumstances and into our sickness and into our struggles and into our sin. Right? Literally, this entire passage is about prayer. It's mentioned in every single verse and every single time James is either commanding it or commending it, recommending prayer. Prayer is where James wants the conversation to get to. He describes it in a variety of ways, calling out to God, singing songs of worship and praise to God, being anointed with oil, praying for healing, praying for forgiveness. He, he describes it as being pervasive through the entire community. Individuals pray. At the beginning, it's if you are sick, you, you know, if you are uh, in trouble, you should pray. It's like whatever your circumstances are, admit them to yourself, own them, and then take them to God and start praying about it. But then he says, but also there's prayer that happens in community with the people that God has placed in your life in this ongoing, habitual, regular way. You're confessing to each other and praying for each other. There are times when things get so big and, and so massive that you need to call the, the senior and seasoned, wise and godly leaders of the community who care about your well-being you call the elders and they come and anoint you with oil and they pray right and by the way what you do in your own personal time I I can't help you with that but this community has tried to provide every resource we can provide to facilitate every other form of prayer in this text we, we invite you to pray with the community through things like the prayer wall, which is in, the, in your location or which is online, southridgechurch.ca slash prayer. Or the, the people who pray together with us at the stage, at the, at the, the front after every um, service. Or um, we invite you to pray to be sharing your life with the people in your life group, or at least the safe people in your life group, and praying for each other. We if you email the elders and say, this is just such a huge thing, I need your help, they will come. And because of what James says, they will anoint you with oil and they will pray. Like we, we want to be a community that radiates James's vision for a prayer that pervades everything. But it's a very particular kind of prayer, James says, that, that God wants to hear. In verse 15, he says this, the prayer offered in faith will make the ill person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, their sins will be forgiven. If you want to experience healing and forgiveness in your life through prayer, it has to be a prayer offered in faith. Which doesn't mean that you just like really, 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 really believe that God is going to say yes. Because what ends up happening is that God sometimes says no and then everybody else says, well, I guess you didn't have enough faith and now we've heaped this person with guilt and shame on top of all the 
garbage they were already dealing with. It's not what James means. What he means is a prayer that is postured in trust. In a trust that God sees me and knows me and knows my circumstances and loves me. Cares about what's going on in my life. A trust that God loves me and knows what's best and wants what's best for me. A trust that God is powerful and can intervene in my circumstance to do what's best for me. A trust that God is still all of those things, even if God says no to my prayer or answers it in a way different than what I was expecting or wanted. A trust that Jesus Christ has come and died on the cross to overthrow the power of sin and death. And he was raised from the dead to unleash the power of healing and forgiveness and transformation in the world. It's a prayer that's offered out of a posture of trust. But it's more than that. In verse 16, James says this, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We've talked about righteous before. That it just means living rightly in the relationships in which you live. Right? Which, according to Jesus, is always only ever living in love. Loving God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Loving yourself as someone who knows that you're beautiful because you're beloved by God. We teach our brave girls this all the time. Loving the people around you. By sacrificing of yourself in order to meet their best interests ahead of your own. Loving the world enough to be dismayed when sin and evil and injustice derails people's experience of the love of God. Loving the planet by living sustainably and responsibly. Caring for this world that God created and gave us. That's what it means to be righteous. By the way, it also means confessing. When you haven't been those things. James says it's the person who prays out of that posture of trust and out of a life of righteousness. What he means is you can't basically ignore God, uh, hate yourself, mistreat people, um, exploit the world and the planet itself and then ring a bell and expect God to come running like some kind of butler or maid. To answer your every beck and call. What he means is that God will be fully devoted to people who strive to be fully devoted to him. And when those people pray, James says, stuff happens. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The, the phrase is odd in Greek, but what it seems to mean is that prayer is a living force that is energized by God and energizes the lives of the people who pray and the lives of the people for whom the prayer is being offered up. And when a prayer postured in trust, rooted in a lifestyle of love, is offered up to God, that prayer has the power to change many things. James says when a prayer is offered in faith, it has the power to bring healing and forgiveness into people's lives. And I know that it's true, not just because James says it, but because we've experienced it, we've lived it. A number of years ago, there was a woman named Stacy whose family was a part of our community. She had friends here and she was involved in a life group here. And she was also battling a particularly vicious form of kidney cancer. In fact, local treatments weren't even available for her kind of cancer. If I remember correctly, she was traveling all the way to Baltimore 
to receive the treatment that she needed for this particular kind of cancer. And I remember one night in particular, during an evening service in our St. Catherine's location, uh, Stacy came to the front and shared her story with our community. And about 50 people surrounded her and laid hands on her and reached out to her. And everyone in the, in the rows was praying as well. It was sort of like the, the peak. It was the mountaintop of a, of a mountain of prayer where she was praying and her friends were praying and their life group was faithfully praying. And we had this moment of shared prayer as a community where the whole community cried out to God to bring healing in her life. And on January 27th of this year, Stacy emailed one of her friends and said, I've just been told that I'm cancer free. I'm going to tell you, friends, there's a lot I don't understand about prayer. I don't understand how medicine and prayer, like how do you account for that? Was it, you know, 30% medicine and 20% random and 50? I don't know how to, I don't know how to account for how treatment and prayer work together, but they do. I don't know how to understand why God asks us to tell God things that God already knows and ask God for things that God already knows that we need and God already knows the future. Why does God choose to work through prayer? I don't know. I, I don't know why God doesn't just automatically heal people or he doesn't always answer the good prayers of good people for good people in good ways. I don't, there's a lot I don't understand, but I will tell you that in the pit of my soul, I believe with all of my being that the prayers of Stacy and her friends and her life group and the whole community was an integral part of her experiencing the healing that she experienced this year. I believe that with all of my being. And I think this is ultimately the invitation of James. That if we could become the kind of people who can get um, ruthlessly honest about ourselves to ourselves, and if we could get ruthlessly honest about ourselves with each other, we together as a community could get ruthlessly honest about ourselves in a relationship with God through prayer. And as we come to God in a posture of trust, backed by a life that just wants to be radically devoted to him, what we would begin to see in the community is the radical healing and forgiveness of God flowing through people's lives in ways that um, only the word miracle could begin to explain. And all of it begins with the ability to get ruthlessly honest about ourselves. So maybe it's time to stop playing two truths and a lie. Or two lies and a truth. Or the game that some of us are playing. Which is three lies about me. And maybe it's just time for us to start playing the game. Three truths. And would you... Step into my journey with me and come before God with me and see what God would do if we just invite him into the ruthless reality of what's actually going on in your life. Because my guess is that it would make all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for welcoming us just the way we are. Thank you that you never judge us. You only ever embrace us, the good, the bad, the ugly, warts and all. You only ever embrace us for who we are when we come. Father, would you teach us to embrace each other that same way so that we would all grow the courage within us to get ruthlessly honest about what's really going on in our lives such that you can begin, we can begin to experience and see the healing and the forgiveness that comes from you. Now, before I say amen, here's what I want to do. The band is going to come to the stage now. I want you to spend a minute in quiet. You don't have to do the with each other part in this moment, but I want you to spend these next couple minutes getting ruthlessly honest with God about what's going on in your life naming specifically the places where you need to experience God's healing and his forgiveness in your life. And then the band will lead us in a final song. Take these moments to lift up your life to God.